I think it's fair to say that when Christians are enjoying times of peace and prosperity, the inclination is to relax spiritually. Without the pressure of spiritual opposition and conflict, we begin to let down our guard and depend more upon our human understanding and abilities rather than on God's power. It happens to us on the mission field. We enjoy years of relative ease in the ministry where there seems to be very little conflict. The church is growing. The ministry team is unified. The ministry students are compliant, and the authorities ignore us. During times of plenty and while sailing the calm seas, we are all at risk of becoming comfortable and apathetic even. Oh, we love the Lord, that's not in question, but our focus has shifted away from a moment-by-moment dependence upon His grace in our lives, and we fall back to doing life in our own strength and wisdom. This happens to all of us until trouble comes, and suddenly we realize how easily we missed the signs of the approaching storm, and we find ourselves unprepared, even shocked, by the onslaught of attacks that we experience. American Christians may very well be facing a time of prosperity and peace under this current White House administration. That would be good, and I certainly hope it is so. But the problem is you might be tempted to let up a little bit and be lulled into a false sense of security, neglecting that sharp edge of discernment that we all need and our daily or your daily dependence upon the power of God in your life. Perhaps you find that you are already there in your mind and in your spirit. You're unaware of the urgency of the hour. You're not focused on the imminent return of Jesus Christ to come for His bride as you ought to be. You just think about that stuff, but it doesn't really impact your life. The busyness of life is consuming you every day, and such a lack of awareness and perspective was a common problem also for the nation of Israel. By the time we get to 1 Kings chapter 21, three years have passed since Elijah's showdown on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. You're sensing a similar theme, aren't you? During those three years, the people of Israel defeated the vastly superior Syrian army, which resulted in a period of peace and prosperity. And along with that peace and prosperity, Baal worship, apparently, had taken up a prominent place in the people's affections once again. Despite the slaughter of the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel, Ahab is still the king. That wicked Jezebel is still his wife. And as long as Ahab is king and Jezebel is his wife, Baal worship will continue to grip the nation. But now it's three years down the road. Ahab has his summer palace in the place called Jezreel, and he's back in the palace for a few days of rest. One day Ahab is out walking, he's looking and thinking, 
There next to the summer palace, nestled right up against it, was the vineyard of a man by the name of Naboth. 1 Kings chapter 21 introduces the story beginning at verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. And Ahab spake unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near unto my house. And I will give thee for it a better vineyard than it, or if it seem good to, uh, uh, to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money." And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. And Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him, for he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid him down upon his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread." But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said unto him, Why is thy spirit so sad that thou eatest no bread? And he said unto her, Because I spake unto Naboth the Jezreelite, and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else, if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give thee my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said unto him, Dost thou, uh, dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let thine heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Just that far for the moment. So this story has four main characters. The first is Naboth, a good and godly man who worshipped the Lord and followed the law of God. He was one of the 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. We might assume that up until this day, there had never been any trouble between Naboth and his neighbor, King Ahab. Well, that's until Ahab decided he wanted Naboth's land, of course. That covetous lust set in motion a disastrous chain of events. The second key player here is Ahab, of course. He was the most wicked king ever upon the throne of Israel. The Scriptures declare that he, more than any other man, imported the worship of Baal into Israel. For that and that alone, there is a black mark forever over his name. He is the king, though I think it would be fair to say that his life and his mind are readily controlled by the third character in this story. Her name is Jezebel. If Ahab was a wicked toad squatting on the throne of Israel, then Jezebel was the evil snake coiled around the throne. She wasn't Jewish. In fact, she was a pagan woman through and through. She came from a long line of Baal worshippers in the Sidonian region of South Lebanon. When she married Ahab, she brought her wicked religion into Israel with her, and I suppose you could say that he was weak and she was strong. Ahab was easily influenced, and she was always ready to push her husband in the wrong direction. So far, we've got Naboth, who owns the vineyard, a godly man, a common man, a man who appears here and here only on the pages of the Bible. Then we have Ahab, the king, and Jezebel, his wife. And finally, we have God's mountain man, Elijah the Tishbite. Since his great victory on Mount Carmel and his humiliating running away and going down to the cave at Mount Horeb, Elijah has not been heard from for three years. 
But this story begins on that day in Jezreel when King Ahab looks at the vineyard of Naboth and says to himself, I am the king of Israel. I need this vineyard, and I want it, and I'm going to get it. So Ahab went to Naboth and asked him to sell it or trade his vineyard for another piece of land in Israel that would be worth much more, a compelling offer. Of course, the king was very much within his rights to do this. He had every right to go to Naboth. He did not sin by making that sort of offer. It was perfectly legitimate and right for him to do so. However, he didn't count on the fact that Naboth was a man of God who followed the law of God. Here is his simple reply to the king in verse 3. The Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. One simple sentence. Those are the only recorded words of Naboth, but they tell us all that we need to know. Number one, he was a man who respected the Lord. Number two, he was a man who respected the word of the Lord. And thirdly, he was a man who respected his own spiritual heritage. He refused to sell the vineyard because Numbers chapter 36 and verse 7 said that if a family had been given a plot of land, it was to be handed down from father to son, from generation to generation. It was not to be sold. It was to remain in the hands of the family forever. It was a simple principle, and Naboth was going to uphold it. That was God's command. So Naboth says to the king, not going to happen. And naturally, the king was upset and humiliated, and he was evidently very angry. He went back to his palace under a cloud. Verse 4 says, And Ahab came into his house heavy and, and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. And then the king threw a fit, a temper tantrum. And then he sent out a tweet expressing his displeasure, as one does. 140 characters of vitriol. Sound familiar? When the queen asks why he is so grouchy, he tells her the bad news. But he neglects to tell his wife the real reason, that is, that Naboth would not sell because he was not willing to violate the law of God. But Jezebel has a plan. Of course she has a plan, always has a plan. Verse 7, And Jezebel his wife said unto him, Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? Arise and eat bread and let thine heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard. So wicked Jezebel hatches a diabolical plot. She decides to write a letter in the name of the king. She composed the letter and had it sent to the elders of the town. And the text of the letter is found in chapter 21, verses 9 and 10. And she wrote in the letter, saying, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth on high among the people, and set two men, sons of Belial, before him, to bear witness against him, saying, Thou didst blaspheme God and the king, and then carry him out and stone him, that he may die. So, verse 11, the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed. The whole city had become so corrupt that the religious leaders, instead of protesting, this evil, murderous plot, go along with Jezebel's plan. But it gets worse. In verse 12, they proclaimed a fast. Can you imagine that? A fast which was to be an act of devotion to Jehovah God. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth with high honor among the people for their own diabolical purposes. 
And that doesn't mean they're about to give him a prize. That means he's about to be sentenced. Verse 13. And there came in two men, children of Belial, and sat before him. And the men of Belial witnessed against him, even against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. Then they carried him forth out of the city and stoned him with stones that he died. Jezebel sends word to the king that the vineyard is now his and instructs him to go down and claim his land. We find out later in 2 Kings chapter 9 that they also killed his two sons, leaving no living heirs, which meant that the land now reverted to the crown. When Ahab saw that the land was his, he was pleased. This is the kind of behavior we've come to expect from godly men and women, and especially those who are in power. Now, don't think for a moment that by faithfully serving God in our modern day, that you are somehow exempt from the kind of treatment that the godly men and women of old experienced. In fact, the opposite will be true. You ought to expect the fact that as you serve God and serve His purposes and accomplish His will, that you're going to become an enemy of all of those who are in opposition to the God of all creation. The enemies of God will accuse you. They'll even often pretend to be Christians. They will gossip about you. They will misrepresent you. They will destroy your good name and reputation. They will oppose you at every turn. They will seek to harm you. And they may even plot to kill you. Being servants of the Most High God comes with accompanying dangers. And please understand, you will not be the first of God's ambassadors to suffer at the hand of His enemies. What happened to Naboth can happen to you. Well, it appears that the king and his wife have gotten away with murder. Check it out. The Bible is clear. It's exactly what they did. And they seem to get away with it. And you say, well, where is God? Does He not know? Does He not care? Where is God when one of His own are put to death? Where is God when a man of God is killed for doing right? Where is God when the wicked rise to power? Where is God when a man like Ahab and a woman like Jezebel can get away with murder? Where is God when evil is loose in the world? But that's not the end of the story. Remember the words of Proverbs 15 and verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the evil and the good. God had been watching the whole scene from heaven. And now he's about to intervene. Uh, God came to his prophet, patted him on the shoulder, and told him to head for Jezreel. Jezebel tells Ahab to arise and take the vineyard, and God says the same thing to Elijah. God says, arise, prophet of God. I have a job for you to do. And again, three long years had passed since the last time the prophet had spoken publicly. I don't know if Elijah had wondered if God had put him on the shelf. Uh, Perhaps Elijah feared that his running away had caused God to give up on him. Maybe he thought his days of prophesying were over. 
Have you ever felt that way? Perhaps you feel that way now. Has God given up on you? Will you ever be useful again in service of the Lord? Hear me this evening. Of course you will. Of course you will be useful. No matter what happened to sideline you from ministry some time back, no matter what reason you cooled off in your witness for Him, God is a forgiving God. He is a gracious God. He is in the business of restoring His children to a place of usefulness once again. He's clearly the God of a second chance. God knew all along that He had another job for this man, Elijah, and He was just waiting for the right time. So God said to Elijah, First Kings chapter 21, verses 18 and 19, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, which is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, whither he has gone down to possess it. And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou killed and also taken possession? And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine. When when Elijah delivers his message to Ahab, he adds an interesting phrase in verse 20, I have found thee because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. The Hebrew word translated sold thyself has a secondary meaning. It means to marry. Elijah is literally saying to Ahab, you have married evil, and in marrying evil, you have given yourself completely to it. You may make the implication whatever way you like, but I see this as a reference to Ahab's wife Jezebel. And then God adds in 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 23 and 24, He says, And of Jezebel also spake the Lord, saying, The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Him that dieth of Ahab in the city, the dog shall eat. And him that dieth in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. Getting a little gruesome, isn't it? There will be disaster in Ahab's family. His dynasty will come to an end. By the way, my dynasty is going to come to an end if my two unmarried sons do not find wives, marry them, and have children. <laughs> As you pray for this dear family, pray for us that, me, that we may one day have grandchildren named Rudolph. <laughs> Back to the message. His dynasty will come to an end and dogs will consume Jezebel. The dogs will consume those who die in the city and the birds will eat the flesh of those who die in the country. So Elijah delivers his message and then he disappears. Uh, this seems to be the pattern with him. He just shows up, delivers his message, and then just as fast as that, he's gone. Kind of like your missionaries. And that's the way it ought to be. So, no, we're not staying. We're leaving. You'll be glad to know. Well, days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months. Ahab doesn't hear from Elijah. And every time a dog barked, he probably jumped. I'm certain he never got it out of his mind. Well, then the story moves into chapter 22, and we discover that Ahab decided that he wanted to go to war against Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, the man he had defeated earlier, whom he should have killed, when he had the chance, but he didn't. And now he's going to go to war against him a second time, only this time it's not going to work out so well for him. 
In verse 4 of, of chapter 22, he asks Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah in the south, to join him in his war against Ben-Hadad. Jehoshaphat agrees, and the day comes when they're to go into battle. And, and knowing that he's a marked man, Ahab uh, comes up with a great scheme. He tells Jehoshaphat in chapter 22 and verse 30 to go to battle dressed as a king, and he, Ahab, will go out dressed as a common soldier. But what Ahab didn't know was that Ben-Hadad had given a very unusual order to his army. He told his army to concentrate only on killing Ahab. And when the battle started, the Syrians spotted Jehoshaphat and were about to kill him, thinking he was Ahab. And then in verse 33, someone suddenly shouts, we've got the wrong king. That isn't Ahab. In the confusion of battle, one of the Syrian archers shot an arrow at random, verse 34. He wasn't aiming at anything. He saw the army of Israel and shot an arrow toward them. Remember, Ahab is dressed as a common soldier. The arrow just happened to come down on Ahab. The Bible says it hit between the sections of his armor. Well, you can never do that on purpose. Not in a million to one could you do that. The soldier shot the arrow, and the sovereign hand of God sent it up into the air and brought it down and hit Ahab in the chink of his armor. He began to bleed profusely until the blood covered the floor of the chariot, but he would not leave the battlefield. And when he died that evening, the army began to scatter, and they buried Ahab in Samaria. Well, now they had a chariot covered in blood. Take a look at verse 38. And one washed the chariot in the pool of Samaria. By the way, that's where the prostitutes were known to bathe. And the dogs licked up his blood, and they washed his armor according unto the word of the Lord which he spake. See, when they washed out his blood, there was so much of it that the dogs came and licked it up, just as Elijah had said. Shortly after Elijah is taken to heaven in a fiery chariot, you can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 2. Now he's gone, he's off the scene, he's in heaven with the Lord. Five years pass, ten years pass, Elijah's long gone, he's been replaced by Elisha. Jezebel is an older woman now. She is still very powerful, a very powerful force in the nation of Israel. And the rest of the story is found in 2 Kings chapter 9, and this is now about 20 years later. A man named Jehu is now king of Israel, and like many others before him had done, he came to power by killing the reigning king. Jezebel still lives in the palace at Jezreel. But there's one tiny fact that she doesn't know. Twenty years earlier, Jehu had been there the day that Ahab had gone to take over Naboth's vineyard. He knew it was wrong because he knew the word of the Lord. And as you read the story of Jehu, you're not really impressed with the fact that he's a spiritual man because he isn't. He was a pretty tough customer. You didn't want to get on his bad side, but he was a far sight better than wicked Ahab. Now, I know the Bible says we shouldn't, we shouldn't compare ourselves among ourselves. That's not wise. But certainly, if you wanted to vote who was the better person, Jehu would have won the prize. Even though Jehu was rough and wild and uncouth, he knew the difference between right and wrong. On one level, at least, he wanted to do the right thing in the eyes of the Lord. And he had never forgotten what Ahab had done to Naboth. 
So the Bible says he got in his chariot and he took a little trip. Verse 30 of 2 Kings chapter 9 says, Then Jehu went to Jezreel. That's the summer palace, of course. This is where it all started. The former vineyard of Naboth is now a royal vegetable garden. When Jezebel heard about it, she painted her eyes and arranged her hair and looked out the window. I suppose she thinks she's going to seduce Jehu. Well, he's not in the mood. And as Jehu enters the gate, she calls out, Is it peace, Zimri, murderer or of your master? Or literally, that's very strange language, it literally means, have you come in peace? Verse 31. Have you come in peace? Well, it's the last thing she's ever going to say except for, oh no, because Jehu looked up and called out, who is on my side? Verse 32. Well, there were two or three eunuchs standing near Jezebel. They served Jezebel. They knew her for what she was. They did not like her. So Jehu says, boys, I've got a job for you. Grab that woman and throw her out. And with great pleasure, one would imagine, they grab Jezebel, give her the old a one, a two, a three, and toss her out the window. And out she went, bouncing all the way down. Well, once again, the text gets rather graphic at this point. She hit the ground hard. Verse 33, they threw her down and some of her blood spattered the wall and the horses as they trampled her underfoot. Well, you know what that means. It means that when they threw her body down, Jehu took his chariot and ran over her over and over again until she was absolutely, completely, totally dead. Ding dong, the wicked witch was dead. A little while later, Jehu says, we can't leave that mess out there. Somebody go get her and bury her. So he sends his servants out, and they come back and say, well, we got, we got good news and we got bad news. The good news is that the witch is still dead. The bad news is, well, there's not much left. The dogs have come and licked up the blood. They've destroyed her body. Nothing is left except her skull, her feet, and her hands. Not a pretty sight. What a story. What a story. Amazing. Elijah had been in heaven for 10 years, but the word of the Lord came true. I want to conclude this message in this missions conference with two important truths about this story. First, God's patience will not last forever. Though the wheels of God's justice grind slowly, they grind exceedingly small. Be sure the sin of those who oppose His purposes will be found out. Payday is coming. There is clearly a part of the gospel message that is a message of judgment. It is true, as 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is God's will. God desires that every soul on the face of the earth would turn humbly toward their God and find salvation in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is being long-suffering and patient to that end. But it is also true that there is a day of judgment coming for all who live contrary to God and His purposes. No one knows when that day will be. But there is a day for every man and woman 
There is a day for every family. There is a day for every nation. There is a day when God will finally say, this far and no further, God's patience will not last forever. Our God is patient, but His patience does run out. You don't believe it? Well, just ask Ahab and Jezebel. There is an urgency in our present day. Do you feel it? There is an urgency to share the gospel with whomever we come in contact. Time is running out. The hourglass of time is emptying fast. Time is running out for everyone who has not yet bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. And God has chosen to use fragile vessels just like you and me. The second truth we must consider this evening is God still looks for Elijahs who will stand up for Him. The day of Elijah's has not yet passed. Those who will stand for him against the wickedness of all who make themselves the enemies of the gospel is what God is looking for. We live in strange times, morally confused times, days of religious and spiritual compromise and confusion. Oh, how we need a generation of men and women and boys and girls who will have the courage of their convictions and who won't just deliver the good news, but will have the courage to deliver the bad news also. We need somebody to say to this lost and dying generation, except you repent, you too shall perish. Well, during the days of the English Reformation, there was a man by the name of Hugh Latimer who was a marvelous preacher of the gospel. He was so bold and outspoken that he ended up being burned at the stake. One day he was preaching before the king, and the king was nervous because everyone knew that Latimer has, was, was like a loose cannon. He was an Elijah of his day. He was capable of saying anything, and Latimer knew the king was nervous. People had said to him, now, Latimer, when you go speak before the king, be careful. Don't say anything that will make him upset. Well, what did Latimer have to lose? Latimer knew everybody was saying and thinking that, and so in his sermon, he started talking out loud to himself. To himself, he would say, Latimer, Latimer, be careful what you say. King Henry is listening. And then he paused and said again, Latimer, Latimer, be careful what you say. The king of kings is listening. No doubt you could use some Elijahs right here in your community who will care more for the king of kings than for the kings and queens of this dying world. We could use more Elijahs on the garden route of South Africa. You can use more Elijahs right there in Portugal and in Spain. In all the world... There are two groups of people and only two. On the one side you have Ahab and Jezebel, and on the other side you have Naboth and Elijah, and there's nothing in between. Everyone in this room tonight is in one of those two groups. There's nobody in between. Ultimately, you're either with Ahab and Jezebel or you're with Naboth and Elijah. So which of those two groups got the better deal? For a long time, it looked like Ahab and Jezebel were in the lead. 
And I know in our present day, it often looks as if the bad guys are winning. It often looks like those who flout the word of the Lord prosper, and it does appear in many places around the world, in China, in the Sudan, in Afghanistan, in Iran, in Syria, even here in the United States, and also in South Africa. It looks like God's people are taking it on the chin. But please hear me. Everybody gets to decide which team they want to be on. If you join Ahab and Jezebel, you can have worldly success, and the dogs will one day lick up your blood. Or you can stand with Naboth and Elijah. The difference is a choice between the comfort of the immediate in exchange for the satisfaction of the eternal. My friends, there's a story to be told to your generation right here in your community, and God has called you to tell that story. He hasn't called me to tell your story in your community, or hasn't even called me to tell my story in your community. He's called me to tell my story in my community. But you're here. I'm leaving. You're staying. This is your mission field. This is your responsibility. This is God's call upon your lives. God wants to use you for His glory. Will you make Him known? Do you have someone on your mind, in your heart, you're praying for? If not, why not ask God tonight to lay some soul upon your heart to begin praying for them and to begin investing in relationship with them and looking for the opportunities to testify of Christ, to tell your story, and to give them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask God to lay one person on your heart tonight.